was younger and I would hear about heaven, I would often be filled with a lot of uncertainty. See, I had heard um, all of the talk about heaven at church and um, even at my home. And I had seen the depictions of people floating around on clouds and playing harps. And I've heard about God wiping away tears and seeing lost loved ones. But in my, in my uh, young mind, and I didn't quite understand what the purpose was of heaven. And the fear came because, again, I didn't know the purpose, and I knew we were going to be there for eternity. And I was like, well, what am I going to do for eternity if I don't know what the purpose is? Um, and so I would be filled with this fear. And the problem was I had an improper focus on what heaven was. All of the things that I had seen and heard that I had mentioned earlier, those were great things. Um, some of them were great things that we're going to actually experience when we get to heaven. But not, that's not our, to be our focus. And that was what I was missing in my view of heaven. And so if you're wondering what the thing that I was missing, what that key aspect was that changed everything for heaven for me, well, we're going to find out what that was as we read Revelation 21. So would you read with me Revelation 21 and verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So the main idea for today is this. Heaven is the fullness of God's presence. Heaven is the fullness of God's presence. So a common idiom, maybe you've heard it in our culture, is heaven on earth. And we use this phrase, typically, to describe a concept of perfection or some pleasant experience that we've had. Maybe you've eaten a great burger and you say to your friends, you have got to try these burgers. It is a heaven on earth. Or, or perhaps you are coming back from a vacation with your family at somewhere far off with a beach and it's nice and warm and, and, you, and you describe your experience in that place as a real heaven on earth. Or, or maybe heaven is something that you are still anticipating and waiting to experience. Heaven is maybe when you can be, become married and have a home with a white picket fence and have kids and, and all these things that you're hoping for. Maybe those are would be your description as heaven on earth for you. Or perhaps getting a job promotion and having a passive income or, or retiring early. These things sound like heaven on earth. But the problem with having these things define our, our focus and what we, what we see in heaven and what we hope for in heaven is that we are looking to things for ourselves. We're looking at things that would satisfy our needs and our wants and our comforts, and not looking at what the reality of what heaven is, and that is his presence. But maybe your hope of heaven is for something a little bit more, um, a little bit more close to home, like your focus on heaven is waiting for that time when you will no longer be, be sick and, and suffering some, some illness that you are uh, suffering through right now. Or maybe your hope of heaven is that you'll be able to see that, that lost a loved one that has died and, and gone before you, and you're, you're just waiting for that day when you can be reunited with them. 
And while these are not bad things to hope for, in fact, we will be free of sickness and death in heaven. We will be reunited with those who have believed and gone and died and gone before us. And and we actually will be free, totally free from all of sin. But again, these things are focusing on something that is not the main focus of what heaven is for us. We are missing out on the chief reward in heaven. Heaven is not just a paradise. Heaven is not just a relief from sin and pain. Heaven is not just a reunion with lost loved ones. Heaven is the fullness of God's presence. It's God dwelling with his people in all of his fullness. You see, this theme of God desiring to dwell with his people has been seen all throughout the Bible. From the very beginning, we have God creating man in Genesis, and God walked with man. But unfortunately, man sinned, and so there was a created a separation between God and man. So God, many years later, chooses a man named Abram who would become Abraham, and he makes a covenant with him and all of his children. His children are the Israelites, who after they escape bondage and slavery in Egypt, they go into the wilderness, and God instructs them to build something called a tabernacle of meeting. This tabernacle, in the original Hebrew, the word that is used where we have tabernacle, the Hebrew word means residence. See, God was creating a dwelling place with his people. The only problem was sin still separated man from God. Even though God dwelt amongst his people, the only ones who could go, there's only certain people who could go into the dwelling place of God and only under certain circumstances. But then it gets better. Jesus takes on human flesh, is born, and when he is born, the angels say that his name is to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, Jesus makes the way for us to be back, to come back into relationship with God. And so the natural question then is, if that is true, and this is our reality in Christ, that we have the dwelling of God with us through Jesus and what he has done on the cross, then why is it something to anticipate or look forward to in heaven? Well, this is often referred to as the already, but not yet. It refers to the tension that we as believers experience in the in-between of Christ's first and second coming. As Christians, we believe that Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he died the death that we deserve, he rose from the dead three days later, and then ascended into heaven, promising that he would return. From his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and until he returns, is referred to in Scripture as the last days. In these last days, the church, from its conception in Acts until today, has lived with this eager expectation and hope for what will come when Jesus returns. In this waiting, we know that we are already adopted into his family. We are already made righteous in Christ, sanctified in Christ, and even raised with Christ. And while these are true, the tension of the last days and the already but not yet, is that we do experience these realities, but not in their fullness. While we are righteous in Christ, we will still experience and do experience the struggle of sin. While we are raised with Christ, we will one day die, but we will be raised again to newness of life with Christ when he returns. 
already, but not yet. This concept also applies to how we experience the presence of God. We know that we have the Holy Spirit living in us, who is God. We have the full and complete access to the Father in Christ Jesus. And we do experience each day the fullness of joy that we have through Christ in the presence of God. But yet we also experience the weariness of our flesh and sin. We may desire to read God's word and spend time in prayer with him, but I don't know about you, but when I try to do these things, my stomach starts growling, or my phone will start vibrating, and I'm tempted to look at it. Sometimes, even when trying to be with God and, and, and meditate on his truths, we can be tempted to sin. That is why Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So in our present state, we experience only a foretaste, a, a glimmer, of, a, a glimpse of what we will receive in the fullness of God's presence. While we do find enjoyment and complete satisfaction in the presence here and now, we have access to that here and now. That's what the whole purpose of what Jesus is coming to do is to get rid of the, that, the, the, the hurdle in our way, the, the big chasm in our way to come to God. And we have access to the Father through Jesus. But it is the access and the, the, the ability to go to his presence is only a fraction of the glory and the satisfaction that awaits us in heaven in the fullness of his presence. So this tension of the already but not yet gives us hope for what is to come. We know that, we've, that we, know we long for something, and, and we long for that unhindered time with God in his presence. And we know that from his word that we will experience that in all of his glory, in all of his goodness. This is the hope of heaven. This is the glorious promise of behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. All our hopes, all our dreams, and all of our deepest longings will be satisfied once and for all in his, the fullness of his presence. And as we continue reading Revelation 21, we are going to be uh, seeing three of those longings that will be satisfied in his presence. So if you would like to continue reading with me in Revelation 21 and verse 4. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. From this we learn this truth. Our longing for all things to be made right will be satisfied in his presence. This letter was written to the early church who was going through intense persecution for their faith. The persecution was rampant in the, those days, and those who desired to be faithful to Christ and to preach the message of the kingdom were punished severely for it. In the midst of their suffering and persecution, God comes to them with this promise that he will one day wipe away their tears, and he, as the former things pass away, he will make all things new. This must have been an encouragement to them in their day, in the midst of their suffering and persecution. And church, this is an encouragement to us today as well. 
we know that there are a multitudes of wrongs and things that we, we desire and long for to be made right. Injustices, sickness, death, wars, the murdering of the unborn, corruption in political and world leaders, and the constant attack on God's standard of what is right. These and many other things weigh us down and make us sick as we, as we watch the evils of this world seemingly go unchallenged and unpunished. There is a longing for, for wrongs to be made right. But let me remind you that the satisfaction for these longings will only be ultimately found in the presence, in the fullness of the presence of God. Now, I'm not diminishing the value of speaking up, taking a stand for the truth and righteousness, and, and defending the vulnerable. As we do this by proclaiming the hope of the gospel and lives are being changed and turning back to, to seeing Jesus as their Lord and Savior, there is a foretaste of these things being made right here and now. However, the only true completion of every wrong being made right is found in his presence. That is why we say, that is why it says in verse 5, Behold, I, I am making all things new. It is not our systems or replacing our systems that will make all things right. And it is not uh, electing the right political leaders that will make all things right. The only one, church, the only one that will make all things right is God. And our longing for that will be completely one day satisfied in the fullness of his presence. Let's continue reading now, picking up in verse 6. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. From this we get our second truth. Our longing for identity will be satisfied in his presence. Our longing for identity will be satisfied in his presence. Looking back again at the original audience, we see that they were, as we've mentioned, being persecuted and enduring a lot of suffering as they were receiving this letter. And we get an idea of what this promise speaks to them. The temptation to turn away uh, from their faith in Jesus was very strong, and they, they were being tempted to deny Christ and to bow the knee to Caesar. Here, Jesus is affirming them in their choice to remain steadfast in the faith, as he says, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. In the face of rejection from the, wor from the world, they had this promise from God of acceptance and identity. And the same can be true of us today. Everyone battles with the question of who they are and where their identity lies. Our culture tries to pin our identity on our job, family, political leaning, race, social status, influence, gender, education, bank statements, possessions. The list can go on. And these are all the things that the world tries to identify ourselves with. But if we're honest, all of these things will always end up falling short of our longing for identity and acceptance. Our thirst for acceptance will only be quenched as we come to the spring of living water that never runs dry and is freely given to us. In Jeremiah 2, God makes this statement about his people who had um, been in rebellion 
towards him. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So instead of going to the source of living water, who was God, they had gone to try and store up water in cisterns or these wells that were broken and could not hold water. And I, I have to confess, I'm always in need of this reminder. So often, I can look at these other things that we've mentioned before that the world tries to identify ourselves with, and I can try to go after things and people to try to get my acceptance. A well with a hole in the bottom, I am always left dry and wanting. But this does not have to be our reality. We can find our identity in the fountain of living water, who is Jesus, and he never runs dry. Even if we are rejected by everyone, we can be confident in our identity as accepted sons and daughters in Christ. And not only that, we can wait with eager expectation for the day when we will see his face and once and for all realize without any question, without any doubts in our minds, without any of the lies of the enemy that try to tell us different, that our identity is that we are sons and daughters of the king and we are going to worship him for all of eternity in his presence. But sadly, the same cannot be said for those who do not believe. Look with me what verses 8 and 9 say. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. As we have seen, the only ones who can go into the presence of God are those who have repented of their sins, turned away from those things of the wickedness that once defined them and have been defined by the righteousness of Christ. Sin is corrupt. Sin is evil and place in God's presence. So those who are in verses 8 and 9 are those who have identified themselves with the exact opposite of God's presence, which is sin. The only way for us to be able to be made right with God, to be in relationship with God, to see the fullness of his presence is to repent of our sins, to no longer practice and pursue the things that, that once are, try to make, become our identity, the sins, the wickedness of this world, and to stop identifying ourselves with them. And I just, and I just want to say that if, if you are in, this this in here this morning and that's your reality, that's where you're at, you are still being identified by your sin. You're still choosing rebellion over obedience to God, this is an invitation and a warning to repent, to turn from those things that are identifying you, the sins of this world, and to stop identifying yourself with them and find your identity in Christ and find the salvation that he brings and you can free, freely receive as you repent and turn to him and be identified with his righteousness and his obedience. Now that we have seen our longing for identity, that it will be satisfied in his presence, let's pick up back into verse 9. It says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God is radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. 
So as we're finishing out the chapter, we see that John's attention is turned as an angel comes to him and says, come, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And as we read these descriptions of this bride that uh, we're going to see in, these, in this chapter, we have to remember the descriptive language that we have seen throughout this, ch- this book. The city is described, again, as the bride, the wife of the lamb. And all throughout the Bible, we see that these words are used to symbolize and describe the church and her relationship to Christ. Also, verse 14 describes how the foundations of the city have the name of the twelve apostles of the Lamb written on them. This corresponds with Paul's teaching of the church in Ephesians 2.20 when he said the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. For this reason and many others, we see that this city described in Revelation 21, 9 through 27 as the church, the bride of the Lamb, you and me. Let's pick up again in, in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its light is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. From these, we get our final truth. Our longing for purpose will be satisfied in his presence. Our longing for purpose will be satisfied in his presence. As we approach these final few verses of chapter 21, we get this description and picture of the city, again, which represents the church. The city has no need for a temple because, as we've already seen, God dwells with his people. The city also has no need for sun or moon to shine because the glory of God is so bright, it is the source of light. The glory of God is all-consuming, and in the all-consuming glory of God seen in the fullness of his presence, we find our purpose, the purpose of the church. As we think on this truth, I want to turn our attention back to uh, verse 10 and 11. It said, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. I want you to notice those words that it said, coming down out of heaven from God. This speaks to the fact that the church is not built on our own might and our own strength. It's not built by our vision or our personality or our effort. Instead, it comes straight from God. Jesus builds his church. He deserves all the credit and all the praise for what he has done, and this is what it means to give him glory. This is why the glory of the Lord will be on full display through the church. It all points back to him and what he has done through his church. Just as light shining through a clear crystal is even more beautiful and more radiant, so also will the glory of God be on full display as it shines through his church in all his glory. And one of the ways that, the, that Jesus builds his church is by drawing people to himself. Jumping back now to verse 24, we see the significance of the light of the glory of God drawing the nations to himself. It is not one particular race or people group that draws Jesus to himself. 
But people from all over every tribe, tongue, and nation are being drawn to Jesus by Jesus. This is why we exist as a church to multiply, multiply diverse disciples and churches unified by the gospel of Jesus. As we said time and time again, this is not our attempt to be relevant with our culture or to fil- fulfill some political agenda. The only reason we desire to be a church that has people from different nations is because it is a reflection of what it will look like in heaven. As people are unified from all over walks of life and all different countries of origin, it all points back to the glory and work of God. We are unified because we are brought together in Christ. We may look different, speak different, have different likes and dislikes and personalities, but the one unifying factor for all of us, his church, is the gospel. We love Jesus. We want to make much of his name. And one day, we will worship him together in the fullness of his presence. This is the purpose of the church, to be unified in giving all glory and all honor and all praise to God because all the glory belongs to him. As we see the purpose of the church revealed in the fullness of the presence of God, we also find our own purpose revealed in the fullness of God. You see, for myself, so often I ask this question of purpose, and it often centers around myself and what I can do. How can I realize and step into my purpose so that I can do something significant and meaningful today? But instead of looking to make a name for ourselves or even making a deep and meaningful impact with our lives, our ultimate purpose and design is to be a reflection of the glory of the presence of God first. Any other pursuit or decision should be shaped by this purpose and this purpose alone. As we wait with eager expectation to experience the fullness of his presence, we can practice giving him glory here and now with our day-to-day decisions. Instead of making decisions in light of our immediate needs and desires, we can choose to make decisions in light of eternity and giving God glory. We can live this way with this single purpose, understanding what our purpose is, because we know that all of our longings for things to be made right and for identity will be completely satisfied in the fullness of the presence of God. So last year, my grandfather passed away, and he had lived a long and very fulfilling life, but he also had some hardships. He grew up during the Great Depression, experienced the hardships of World War II, losing friends and um, just the grittiness of war, and he lost his wife to lung cancer. For a while after my grandfather died, sorry, after my grandmother died, my grandfather was bitter towards God because of all the hardships that he had experienced in his life. A few years before he died, however, thankfully the Lord had um, come to the, through the gospel, had shared the, someone had shared the gospel to him, and he accepted um, Jesus into his heart, and um, he surrendered his life to Jesus. But at his funeral in Wisconsin, the pastor from his church shared that he asked this question uh, the week before my grandpa died. He said, what are you looking forward to the most about going to heaven? Now, my grandfather loved my grandmother so much. If you were ever uh, brought her up around him, like uh, her name or something about her, he would begin to tear up and talk about how much he loved her and missed her. So naturally, as I heard the pastor had asked this question to my grandfather, 
I figured that he was going to say that he was looking forward to seeing his wife again. But that was not his response. The pastor shared that my grandfather responded by saying, to be with Jesus. And this filled my heart with so much joy when I heard this because it showed my grandfather's understanding of the gospel. He knew that the greatest gift that we have received from God in saving us is the gift of himself. And this is the hope of heaven. And this is my hope that as we have talked about heaven this morning, we will see that our, our longing for things to be made right, our longing for our identity, our longing for purpose, they're only will be satisfied in his presence. And so we look forward in eager expectation and anticipation of heaven, not for those things alone, but for the fullness of his presence, to be with Jesus. And this is what we get to invite others into as well, as we share the message of Jesus with them. You see, the hope of heaven has already changed us, and the reality of heaven will ultimately and completely change us when this day comes. His presence is with us now, and the fullness of his presence is just around the corner. Church, the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Lord, we're uh, so encouraged by this message of hope, this message of life, that we will have received you, the fullness of your presence, and we will see and experience to a greater degree and depth the fullness of your presence one day in heaven. I pray that as we, we worship you um, and close this morning, that we would keep our eyes fixed on you, our one true hope, and that we would, with eager expectation, await that day and tell others so that they can experience it with us, experience the fullness of your presence. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.